So on August 23rd of this year, if you were around Houston, Texas, turning on the TVs or the radios would have yielded a constant stream of evacuation orders. Storm was coming, Hurricane Harvey was headed in, and people were headed out. And here's a picture of the interstate the next morning. But you know what's interesting about this picture? You know which way Houston is? It's the way those trucks are headed. These people are driving into the storm. And in, in all the moments, the viral moments the internet has had to offer in its brief life here on Earth, I think this is one of the most beautiful. A line of truck drivers driving into the storm. When the danger has come, they go in. As the floodwaters are rising, they head in. A question I want to ask us this morning is this. Is this a metaphor for the American church, or is it not? I want to know, what kind of believers are we when the storm comes? I begin this way because I believe that there really is a kind of cultural storm going on right now, but a very real storm. And so you and I, and so many around us, because of it, feel absolutely overwhelmed. And sometimes it's this interior thing going on. It's, it's the confusion, or the anxiety, or the depression that burdens our inner life. Sometimes it's exterior. Sometimes it's, we, we're looking at the world and we're wondering, what's happening? Where's this going? Where's this all headed? Usually, unfortunately, I think it's like a clash of cold weather fronts where we experience both at the same time and we are absolutely overwhelmed by it. And so the question I want to talk to you about this morning is, when that happens, what kind of followers of Jesus do we become? Are we a church who retreats? Who says, we got boats and we're headed for the hills. Save yourself. You can imagine how tragic this picture would be if that was away from Houston. If all the people who had the equipment to help were fleeing. Would we be a church who retreats? Would we be a church who ignores? Who says, yeah, it's not that bad. This isn't, that, this isn't, this isn't the big one. And we turn our minds and our heads back to the glowing screens and mindlessly scroll as the floodwaters begin to pour over the windowsills? Are we a church who ignores? Or are we a church who drives into the storm? What kind of followers of Jesus are we? I'm not up, to you. I'm not up here talking to you this morning because I know the answer to that question. I don't, I really don't. I don't know what kind of church we are here in America, but I know exactly what kind of church I hope that we are. And I am up to here talking to you this morning because I know exactly what kind of church I believe the Bible calls us to be. And that is a church who so believes in the life, in the teachings, and in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we, like the Savior that we profess, walk out into the storm. I want to talk about this morning with you in sort of three ways. First, I want to convince you that there is a storm. And the storm, I'm going to say, is that we're in a crisis of habit where we, as modern-day Americans, have forgotten that habits fundamentally shape who we are. And because we are not attentive to our habits, we not only fail to be the people we aspire to be, but we are also deformed by the default cultural habits that wash over us like waters eroding the soul. 
And then second, I want to introduce you to a time in the church's history where they demonstrated an ancient answer to this modern problem. A time when believers practice very specific gospel habits as a way of forming communities of love that would point towards their greatest aspiration of building the city of God. And I want to try to convince you that it is this uniting of the, the smallest, most practical habits with the highest, most beautiful aspirations that allowed them to be a church who, like their Savior that they believed in, walked into the storm. And then third, I want to introduce you to a set of daily and weekly habits that I call the common rule and submit to you that this might be a way for us to weather our own storm and not only find the gladness of God in it, but to find our neighbor as well. So first, let me try and convince you that there really is a storm. And to do that, I'm going to need to tell you my own story and introduce myself to you a little bit. So 10 years ago, I uh, left America to become a missionary in China. And after five years, I encountered there, in a day that changed my life, a political protester. And that's a great story, but it's a story for another talk. But needless to say, this political protester changed the course of my life, and I decided to move back to America to go to law school to pursue a missional calling in law and business. So I came back, I studied law in D.C., and then I moved down here to Richmond, where I work as a mergers and acquisitions attorney. I still am today, which explains why I found myself to be overdressed this morning. Apologies for that. <laughs> so I moved down here as a lawyer, and you could say, but on a mission, but on a Christian mission, I believed. I felt I was called. But you, and you could say at the time that though I was on a Christian mission, the, my life looked exactly like what all the other top crazy law students' lives looks like. It was full of beeps and alerts and calendar invites. It was full of obligations. It was full of late nights and early mornings. It was full of overwork. I was living, I think, a life without limits. You could say that the, in the house of my life, there was, there, it was decorated with Christian content, but the architecture, just the same as everybody else's. And it was working for me until the storm collapsed it. One night, just a few months after moving to Richmond, a few months after having my second son, a few months after passing the bar exam and starting a new job, I uh, was dozing off in bed when I suddenly woke up with an awful feeling of existential terror. And I had no idea what it was about. I was trying to search, like, what, am I worried about something? And I, I struggled to go back to sleep. It was so odd. I told my wife about it. And, and then the next night, it happened again. Except the difference was I never went back to sleep. And on the third night, this happened again, and I found myself shaking so badly that I thought something was wrong with me. I went to the emergency room where the doctors told me, you've got anxiety. That was, I, was, I never heard like that. I, like, I, I was a very, you would have asked my friends, I was a very carefree, not stressed person. But this begun one of the darkest storms that my life has ever experienced. For weeks, I was on sleeping pills or experimenting with medications, trying to find a way out of the storm. I remember one night in the middle of all this, when it, these pills were causing ex extremely depressive mood swings and almost hallucination-like dreams. I, I was standing in the kitchen one night, and my wife was handing me dishes to put away. And I took them, and then I looked at her, and I said, I don't know where these go. And I really did it. My, my mental and emotional life was falling apart so much that I, I didn't know where I was or what I was doing. And this, it, this was a long phase where 
I began to not be able to sleep unless I took medication or drank alcohol. The storm was raging. I had no idea what to do. Now, look, these kind of bouts with mental illness um, are complicated. So I don't want to oversimplify this morning, but I want to be careful, but I will confidently say that looking back on that time now, I strongly believe that one of the fundamental things that was happening is that my body was finally being converted to the anxiety and busyness that my, my habits and my routines worshipped. And I wish I could tell you there was an easy fix. I wish I could tell you that there was a pill that I took that made it better, but there wasn't. It was a long road out of the storm. But I want to tell you that it, of an important milestone on that road. It was about 15 months after this happened, and I'm sitting at a table with two of my best friends having a really important conversation. We were at a bar having a drink, and there was a piece of paper on the table, and on that piece of paper there was a program of habits scribbled out that my wife and I had developed to try to get my body to believe again the peace that my head was professing, but my heart was refusing. And as it turns out, that program of habits brought me out of the worst time of anxiety in my life and into a new place of peace. And in some ways, it was just an educated guess. In some ways, it was a careful study of the scriptures to see what spiritual disciplines meant. But it, it changed my life. And those scribbled habits were the beginning of what I'm going to tell you about here at the end of my talk called The Common Rule. So I, I tell you that because, you know, I, that's my story. It's personal. It might be extreme, but it's not unusual, unfortunately. You and many around us are being formed far more by your habits than by your hopes. And that's the problem. Everyone is, so we don't see it. The stormwaters are running over us, creating patterns and grooves in us, and we don't know it because that's just how it is. It was on um, 2005, May 21st, American novelist David Foster Wallace gave an almost instantly famous graduation speech at Kenyon College. And he began it with this little story. He said, there's two fish swimming in the water one morning. And they happen to encounter an older fish swimming by them. He says, morning, boys, how's the water? They give him a nod and they keep going. And after a few minutes, one of the fish turns to the other young fish and he's like, what the heck is water? What's this old guy talking about? And the point, as David Foster Wallace put it so well, is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are precisely the ones that are the hardest to see and to talk about. And this, is a serious, this is a serious question. How do you solve a problem you can't see? How do you diagnose a cultural storm when you and I are living in it? And I would submit that you can't unless you find some way to sort of step out a little bit of the storm and look back into it. In, in, in my life, there's, there's two things that really helped me start to step out of the water enough to see the water. One of them was just coming home from being a missionary in China. I found that I had been bent by my life there in a way from which I would never be straightened. And when I came back to America, I just, I just didn't fit in the way I used to. And that ended up being a wonderful thing for me, albeit a hard thing. Um, if you've ever lived overseas, you probably know what I'm talking about, but it doesn't take that, all right? The Bible over and over talks about followers of Jesus becoming foreigners and strangers in their own country. And when we begin to understand that Christians are exiles in their own land, 
And especially when you, get to pra- when you begin to practice some habits that resist the practices of America, your eyes start to begin to open, and you're like, my goodness, this is a strange and bizarre place that despite its protest that we are a neutral space, we are a secular land, we are free, do what you want. No, 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 no. It is filled with all kinds of wild and weird idols, secular idols that would love to have you bow down and be enslaved to their service. And David Foster Wallace actually makes this point, who, by the way, to my knowledge, at least, David Foster Wallace is not a follower of Jesus, but he's extremely insightful. And he made this point later in his talk. He said, this is the point that Christian theologians have been trying to make for centuries. He said, you can't not worship. The only question is what? So the question is, for us, is what are we worshiping? And the thing that pushed this for me in even a new way, this is the second thing, was that after my anxiety collapsed, I was reading a philosopher named Jamie Smith who took this idea that everybody is always worshiping and pushed it into a whole new level. And he said, and we are probably worshiping the most in our most ordinary habits and routines. We don't normally think like that because we think worship is confined to maybe a sacred space like this. But his point is that, and he uses this great phrase called cultural liturgies. He says, we are in our everyday, normal routines acting out liturgies of worship to something. So the question is, what are we worshiping? Because like the Psalms say, those who make and trust in idols will become like them. So the question is, what are we becoming? Because we are becoming our habits. Let me try to make this practical for a minute. Here's some habits of my pre-anxiety crash life. All right, wake up short on sleep again because I never go to bed on time. Liturgy of worship, I will be fine. I am infinite. I am a God. Don't worry about it. Habit two, look at work emails every morning before getting out of bed. Liturgy of worship, I can miss a time reading my Bible in the morning, but I cannot miss a quick response. If I am not well regarded in my office, then I am no one. Habit three, grab breakfast on the go while everybody else scrambles to get somewhere late. Eat at my desk. Liturgy of worship. If I'm busy, then I'm important. If people need my time, then I'm important, so I can't say no to anyone or anything. Habit four, keep alerts on my phone and on my computer, on and insight always. Liturgy of worship. The best way to love my neighbor is not to do good focused work, it's to stay updated on the newest cultural memes and dramatic headlines. All right, let me just stop there. It's not even 10 a.m. And by not doing anything, I am doing so many things. All right, and this is the paradox, right? So by not having any sort of program of formation, we become disciples of the cultural default of formation And it is causing us to worship this kind of omniscience and omnipresence. No wonder my body rebelled. No wonder we fall apart. So sometimes when I talk about this common rule stuff, people are like, man, I don't know. Like, I am busy. I am tired. I got a lot going on. I don't know if I can think about a new set of habits. And I'm like, that's the point. Like, you're so overwhelmed. And I was too. And and the, the... The biggest blessing I found in starting to experiment with formational habits is that suddenly by doing one or two things intentionally, I stopped doing like a hundred things unintentionally. And I was glad for it. 
And I call your attention to this storm this morning, not because I want to be alarmist. I hate doing that. I just want to be true. And I want to let you know that there is a way of gladness in the storm. Did you notice in the walking on water passage that we read, there's one emotive word that's positive in there, and it's when Jesus gets into the boat and it says the disciples were glad to take him into the boat. There is a way of gladness in the storm, and it's in the presence, in the practices, in the beliefs of Jesus. So this is the problem, that we are in a, a place of immense sadness, like the Avett brothers write in their most recent album, I hate to say it, but the way that it seems is no one is fine. Peel back the layers and you will find true, true sadness. And this is the modern problem, but I want to submit to you that there actually is, surprise, surprise, an ancient solution. It's a biblical solution. So to tell you about this, let me tell you a story, a second story, about another time. A very different time, some ways a very similar time. It's the turn of the fifth century. And there is an unprecedented cultural storm happening. Rome has been sacked by the barbarians, which had, it had not been invaded in 800 years successfully, and suddenly the vandals are here. To understand this, you've got to think, as painful as it may be, about something like 9-11, except that the terrorists are here, and they're in control. It's like the U.S., like the paragon of world order, crumbling to the chaos of the intruders. All right, and no one knew what to do. And just at this time, living across the Mediterranean in what is modern-day Algeria, was a man. He was a smart kid growing up, middle-class kid who got lucky enough to be picked out for an upper-class education. And he blossomed to, into an incredible orator, which in that time made him a celebrity. He loved alcohol. He loved women. And before he came a monk and gave up those things, he wrote the famous prayer, Lord, give me chastity, just not yet. This is St. Augustine of Hippo, who finds himself the bishop of a church, running and preaching and teaching and, and stewarding this group of people and running a monastery in the middle of a collapsing kingdom. And what is so endlessly fascinating to me and compelling to me about this man's life is this, that at the time of existential crisis, he is writing about two things. One, he is writing about the city of God and how to rebuild it. And two, he is writing about the most mundane, recurring daily practices that the monks should follow in his monastery. Look at these things for a second. On the one hand, he's talking about what does it mean, brothers and sisters, that there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that there is a way of peace amidst empires collapsing? What does it mean that Christians are called to build the city of God within the city of man so that, like the Proverbs say, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices? So bright was Augustine's hope in the midst of this cultural despair that a writer later said that he pioneered a way of longing for the good instead of fearing the bad. How relevant is that to us right now? He, this, this work, of course, is the uh, city of God, and it endures still now as one of the seminal works on what it means for believers to bring the gospel to bear on public life. At the same time, though, he is living in this very particular way. See, years earlier, he had written what's called a rule of life for his monastery. Now, a rule of life is just fancy monastic shorthand 
for a set of recurring habits and practices for the monastery. See, people were coming to Augustine's monastery, some who used to be rich, some who used to be poor, some who were refugees of this cultural crisis. And he's trying to tell them, if, if we're going to live together to build the city of God, we must live in ways that practice virtue. And he, uh, here are some examples. He writes things like, be assiduous in prayer at all the hours and the times appointed. He writes, when you go outside the monastery, walk together, and when you get there, stay together. He writes things like, books are to be checked out of the library at the appointed hour and not at any other hours. It, so Augustine, as one writer put it, was consumed with cultivating virtues through practices that reshape existence in light of what Christians call grace. So step back with me for a minute here. Do you see the significance of these two things alongside each other? Augustine is saying, with the highest calling for believers right now is to build the city of God in the rubble of the city of man. And we cannot do that unless we are forming communities with habits of love that drive them towards that city. This, this idea of the rule of life for the sake of the world changed the world. This, this idea of the ordered life, one that turns from the world in order to care for the world, actually changed the world. But whatever criticisms you might have about the monasteries and the monastic orders, don't worry. There is just as many criticisms of them as there are of the contemporary American church. Whatever you have to say about that, though, you should and you ought to acknowledge that they inaugurated a way of walking into the storm and finding neighbors. They, they, their practices inaugurated hospital systems, inaugurated systems of education. They became the complex of institutions that cared for the poor. They reformed the church when it was in its deepest corruption. And this is what I want to emphasize for us today, that ordering our habits and love is not just for the sake of finding the gladness of God, though we will find that. It is also for the sake of finding the neighbors who need us. Because we want to be a church who walks into the storm and doesn't retreat, and doesn't hole up, who doesn't ignore, then we have got to talk about a reformation of habits. I looked at you all's website, and I love it. It says, we exist to love the city beyond reason. What a beautiful thing. I love that. I hope you do that. But I'm saying to us as an American church, if we want to face outward, then we will have to talk about a reformation of our habits. Look, at a time when it is normal to walk, work around the clock so that you can justify your existence through your job title and accomplishments, oh, that Christians would have the practices and habits of love to walk into their job and walk into that storm and live differently. Like in a time when we look around in the city of Richmond and see public schools not training kids to walk into the storm, but to walk into prison, oh, that Christians would have the practices and habits of love that we could walk into that storm and speak to it. When we look around and we see a prison system that is not any sort of rehabilitation system, but is that a hamster wheel on which the vulnerable must run, oh, that Christians in this culture would have the practices and habits of love that compel them to go and speak the word of hope to that system. When, when, the, when Nazis are walking the streets in daylight, and it is unclear whether we have the moral clarity to know what to say about it, oh, that the church would have the habits and the practices of love that compel them to go speak the words of justice to that storm. We're in a time when the mental illness in the minds of our sons rages so normally 
that we don't even notice it until one of them goes off the edge of their own sanity and shoots up a square of innocent people. Oh, that we would have the practices and habits of love that compel us to walk into that cultural storm and say, Lord, have mercy. We need a Lord of the storm. We need the one whose voice can quiet the waters, and we need to follow him into those storms to speak a word of hope. So this, it is on this vision, and not a vision of self-help, and not a vision of your best life now. It is on this vision of the gladness of God and the endless pursuit to find our neighbor in the storm that I want to tell you about some practices that I think we should consider called the common rule. So the common rule is set out in two different directions. The first one is loving God and loving neighbor. All right? And this is a statement that we need to be outward, not like what Martin Luther called sin is the inward curve, that we need to be outward to love God and love neighbor. And the second set of directions is, is the call to embrace and resist. Because if it's true that we're living in a cultural storm and the waters are creating pathways and grooves in our habits, then a meaningful part of our life needs to be to resist. But we only resist because there's something better to embrace. All right, so those are the directions. And then you'll see on the outer layer, there's a set of weekly habits. Pretty simple things. It's pretty simple things like Sabbathing once a week to embrace rest and resist overwork. Things like an hour of an intentional conversation with a friend each week in order to resist cultures of shallowness and embrace and build a culture of vulnerable friendship. There's weekly practices of like limiting your hours of media intake so that you can actually turn your eyes away from the screens and see into the world of beauty and injustice. And then there are weekly practices like fasting from something one day a week to open your eyes to suffering and learn what it likes to be with those who suffer. And then there are daily practices, things like um, punctuating your day with prayer as habits of embrace and love of God. Things like having a meal one day with others so that we actually are with our neighbors and not constantly alone. Uh, things like turning off your phone for one hour a day in order to bring your presence to those who need you. Or the habit of resisting looking at your phone first thing in the morning until after you've read a short passage of scripture. All right, so you might be hearing these things and thinking, um, I'm not really sure any of these are going to change anything. And that's actually good because it makes the point of like, yeah, because we're accustomed to the water, we don't get it. And I didn't either. But let me just break down two or three examples of this and show you how I think these practices form us. All right? So take the example of reading a short passage of scripture before you look at your phone. Here we are talking about a rhythm of resistance that is designed to get us to embrace the love of God by resisting the utter chaos that arrives at our heart's doorsteps through our phones. All right, we're looking at the, the moment of waking up in the morning and saying, what does it mean? What is happening? What are we baptizing ourselves in at the very beginning of the day? Is it, is it the story of God's love for us in the Psalms? Or is it the story of the, all the work emails that need our attention and the ways that we need to justify our existence again today? Is it, is it the story of God's sovereignty over the world in the epistles? Or is it the morning shock and awe of media headlines that are specifically designed to get you and I so riled up that we continue to click on them all day and come back in the evening to watch more? Or maybe it's the stories of social media, like all the travel, all the food, all the well-behaved kids, so pretty, how I wish my life was different. I, we need to engage with social media well. And we're not going to do that until we realize that 
it is formative. And if we put our tired hearts and minds in its skewed stories first thing every morning, we will be trained in ways of anxiety and envy. It has consequences. So however briefly we start our day in the word of God's love for us, then think about the habit of um, an hour a week of intentional conversation with a friend. This is the habit that is designed to cultivate the thing we need so badly to survive in this world, a friend. It's always been true that we need friends. We were created in the image of Trinitarian friendship such that Adam in the garden in Genesis was lonely with God until God created Eve as his first friend. We've always needed friends. How much more do we need them now, though, in a time when we are encouraged to curate our every moment online? And at the same time, we're encouraged and enabled to have a completely secret life online. Like, how much more do we need a friend who knows all the secrets that we are spending our lives so desperately trying to hide? So we look to this weekly practice of an hour of intentional conversation with friends as a way to bear the gospel out to one another. Here is the gospel. I know you fully, and I'm sticking around anyway, and I love you. And how much more do our neighbors need this? You could search your neighborhood streets looking for the man falling in the, fallen in the road, longing to be the good Samaritan. You likely won't find him. But you get past the doorstep of your neighbor's front door and into their kitchen, you will find the vast majority of men and women living those quiet lives of desperation. And there is no medication for the anxiety and the depression that riddles the common American, like a friend who comes back week after week to tell the truth. This is a way of modeling our very lives on that beautiful sentence from Augustine's rule. It has like new meaning now. When you go out, walk together. When you get there, stay together. Let me just give you one final example. Weekly habit of limiting screen entertainment. This is the habit that suggests we limit our hours of screen entertainment to something, pick a number, because we want to turn our attention to the neighbors who need us. And by media or screen entertainment, I mean everything from Netflix to news stories to news blogs, whatever. Here's the point. It is not because stories are unimportant. It is actually because stories matter so much. You and I probably both know, even if we can't say it, that stories shape the world. Our stories teach us more than any Sunday school probably ever has about what it means to live the good life. So we, we need to pay attention to the stories we engage with, not because they're unimportant, but precisely because they are so important. And we cannot control it in an age where the format, the medium of the story, is specifically designed to get you to read the next one, click on the next one, watch the next one, autoplay. There's a famous media critic named Marshall McLuhan who 50-some years ago said, the medium is the message. And I would say that Christians, as loving cultural critics, should be dissecting the medium of a news blog and the medium of a TV series as much, if not more, then we dissect the worldview in it because this medium will turn our eyes away from the neighbors who need us. I encourage you to be at the screen with your wife and your friends or your kids, but I also encourage you to put a limit to it so that we're not always on the couch facing a screen, but sometimes at a table with a glass of something looking in each other's faces. How much more 
important it is when you think about all the neighbors, the vulnerable ones who need us, and yet whose plights and stories can't cut through the white noise of the constant stream of media. There's a neighborhood right next to mine where the poorest of Richmond are segregated into an almost war zone kind of violence. And I do not care, because what I do care about is the postseason collapse of the Washington Nationals, because that's what made it to my phone. And what does that say about my capacity to adjust to injustice? Oh, that we would lift our eyes to our neighbors. And on that movement of looking up to finding the vulnerable who need us, let's, let's bring this to a close. I want you to go back with me to Houston one last time. Just think of that line of drivers waiting to drive into the danger. So I started with the idea of, like, if we're going to be a church to, that drives into the storm, that we need to be communities that practice love. There we will find the gladness of God, and we will also find our neighbor. And so if any of this is interesting to you, if it's even provoked a little bit, I encourage you, go on online to thecommonrule.org and check out some of the habits. Read up more. I, I would love it if you would try them, but I would especially love it if you would try them with some friends. Think of it like a Whole30 diet for your everyday habits. Give it a shot for 30 days. See what you think. But don't, don't do it alone, because formational habits are communal habits. And don't try to do it perfectly. Right, people ask me when I talk about this, you really live like this? I'm like, no, of course not. <laughs> but I really do try. I really do point my life in that direction. And I fail constantly, and there it is. Because failure to the follower of Jesus is not a dead end. It is the very place where your eyes are open to see the Savior who's walked out under the water into your storm, holding his hand out. It is the very place where you see the Savior who walked up to the greatest storm of all history on the cross and died in the storm so that you and I might be able to weather the storm. Failure is the place where we see that in the resurrection, God spoke the word to calm all storms and that he has sent the life of Christ and his Holy Spirit to be with us so that we can walk as he walked into the storm. In that kind of grace and power, I would say, let's go. And like Augustine, when we get there, let's make communities of practiced love that aspire and labor to be the city of God. And like T.S. Eliot wrote, when we get there, where we find the mortar cracked, we will build with new bricks. When we find the timbers rotten, we will build with new beams. Where we find the words unspoken, we will build with new speech. In that grace and power of Jesus, I submit to you, I plead with you, I encourage you, let us become a church who, like the Savior we believe in, walks into the storm. Let's pray. Jesus, we look at you and, and we love you. We admire you. We admire that you came to us in our storm and died in it so that we could live in ours. Oh Lord, would you change our hearts so that we can change our habits? Would you change our habits so that you can change our hearts? We pray that we would find your gladness and we pray that we would find our neighbor. It's in your name we ask. Amen.